You're listening to Cloud9, where Bahaiteachings.org interviews artists from around the globe to learn about what inspires, uplifts, and motivates them to make a positive contribution to the world. My name is Shadi Talui Wallace. Admittedly, I'm not American, nor am I a person of color. But I am an artist, and I'm also a member of the Baha'i Faith. And because of this, I am committed to justice and exploring ways in which individuals, communities, and institutions can transform and work towards a just and equitable society. That's why this episode is the first of a four-part series dedicated to an exploration of the social and spiritual implications of Confederate and colonial monuments as public forms of art here in North America and around the world. The founder of the Baha'i Faith, Baha'u'llah, writes that the best beloved of all things in his sight is justice. He says that by its aid thou shalt see with thine own eyes and not through the eyes of others, and shalt know of thine own knowledge and not through the knowledge of thy neighbor. So when the conversation about the protection or removal of Confederate and colonial monuments and questions surrounding their accurate depictions of history, memory, and context surfaced once more, I decided to deepen my understanding of the implications of these monuments. I wanted to know if they help humanity on our collective path toward justice. Our guest in this episode is Dr. Derek Smith, a professor in the Department of Literature at Claremont McKenna College, just east of Los Angeles. His work focuses on African-American literary culture with a particular interest in poetry. He'll be giving us an in-depth overview of monuments and will no doubt provide insight, answers, and perspectives on the historical context and narrative surrounding these Confederate monuments in the United States and really setting the stage for our future conversations in later episodes. My question about justice is one that many people are asking. Since their inception, Confederate and colonial monuments have been a source of contention across North America and the world. Often considered public forms of art, these monuments have stood in central and public spaces for decades, and in the case of colonial monuments, centuries. They're protected by law and often maintained through public funding. To many, they represent the past, a part of our collective history, and their removal has been argued as an erasure of that history. However, in recent years, we've begun to see individuals, communities, and governments rallying behind the removal of these monuments. They're standing together in opposition to what the monuments symbolize and stand for. We've seen monuments decapitated, spray-painted, thrown into rivers, reimagined by artists and removed from public spaces. Recent high-profile events involving police brutality and systemic oppression are just the latest reminders of a long history of violence against Black people in America. These events have once again brought to the surface questions surrounding the validity of these monuments as public forms of art and their celebration of racist individuals and ideologies. As someone who thinks deeply about the private and public consumption of art, I've really been questioning the justifications surrounding these monuments in general and whether they hold us back from our pursuit for justice or provide a pathway forward. There's no doubt that for some people, this question of what to do with monuments has grown into a far bigger politically partisan issue. 
As an artist and a Baha'i, I really want to steer clear from partisan divides. But as an advocate of justice and a seeker of truth, I want to learn more about these monuments. The principle of the Baha'i faith is to independently investigate the truth. So I decided to do my research and talk with various experts and individuals. We'll explore the implications of these monuments on social and spiritual level and find ways in which the Baha'i teachings can offer us a blueprint for moving forward. Future episodes in this series will include a conversation with Dr. Laili Mipayan, who is a psychologist and currently the director of the Wellesley Centers for Women and professor of Africana Studies at Wellesley College to talk about the effects of Confederate monuments on the psyche of people of African descent. We'll also chat with Dr. Justin DeLeon, who is currently a visiting research fellow at the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, and he's got a focus on feminist theory, indigeneity, and creative storytelling. And we're going to talk to him about the implications of Confederate and colonial monuments and mascots on people of indigenous descent. And finally, we will close the series with a conversation with Anissa Tavangar, a writer, editor, and creative producer in Brooklyn, New York, who works at the intersection of art, justice, and spirituality. We'll talk to her about how the Baha'i Faith offers artists and community members a blueprint for ways to memorialize the future. But today, we are joined by Dr. Derek Smith. Derek, a warm welcome to Cloud9. Thank you for having me so much, Shadi. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you and share a little bit of uh, thinking between the two of us and with a larger audience. So thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you so much, Derek. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself, in particular, your educational background and research and and maybe anything that's relevant to the conversation that we're going to have today? Sure. Uh, My particular area of interest and research writing, teaching uh, is what I would consider American culture, broadly speaking, uh, more specifically African-American cultural history, and then very particularly African-American poetry and let's say intellectual history. And um, so in the context of my research and writing and teaching in these areas, it becomes necessary to become familiar with some of the prominent sort of discourses, particularly having to do with race um, in American intellectual history. And so within that, we have sort of conceptions of history and its envisioning within primary texts such as um, we could say novels or literary arts like the poem or film or then also historical narratives um, that give us a representation of the past. And it's kind of within that context that I come to certain kinds of understandings about the Mm -hmm. monuments of the Confederacy that we're trying to talk about today. Thank you so much. I know how incredibly busy you are. So we greatly appreciate your time today. I'm going to jump straight in with my first question. What is a Confederate monument? Sure. Um, From my perspective, uh, these are types of art, sometimes public, um, sometimes placed in what we could call public space, um, but not always, that are meant to memorialize those who participated in the Civil War on the side of the Confederacy, that is, the seceding slave states from the South, 
um, usually meant to honor and give valor to the individuals or the ideals that are embodied in these monuments. I mean, that's how I would sort of think of a Confederate monument. So the Baha'i writings talk about justice being unattainable without truthfulness and how both are vital for the establishment of unity. In fact, the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, said that no light can compare with the light of justice, the establishment of order in the world and the tranquility of the nations depend upon it. So what's at the crux of this issue with Confederate monuments? What's at the truth of the matter? Well, I mean, to be sort of uh, kind of complex and sophisticated in our thinking, there are a lot of different things that are at stake in um, the movement to remove these uh, statues to the Confederacy and as there were in the erection of these statues. Um, so in in to take into account the quotation that you just read from Baha'u'llah about the necessity of justice for the establishment of order, um, I think that we might add a third point to that uh, from the revelation, which is that the appearance of justice uh, or the justice is the purpose of justice is the appearance of unity amongst men. This is something that uh, Baha'u'llah has also said. So we have to think about justice as a means of establishing order, and that order can then bring about the unity of all humanity, which is what we as Baha'is are seeking, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I see it as a, if, if we're engaging in questions and uh, sort of issues of justice, uh, we have to think about those as um, means by which we can achieve the greater end of unity, which is the purpose of Baha'u'llah's reveli- revelation and what we as Baha'i see as being the mm. uh, moment of maturity for humankind, right? So in some ways, the issues of justice that are cropping up around the uh, statuary that we're talking about um, have to do with, in my mind, how can we achieve a level of justice that will help bring us toward unity, right? So this is not simply, in my mind, uh, justice for justice's sake, right? This is about justice for the Mm -hmm. achievement of that far greater end, right, which is the appearance of unity amongst all human beings. So this is how, this is like the continuum of thought that I would implement when thinking about these, uh, this monumentalization of a, uh, of the Confederate past, right? So if I can take another step uh, beyond that, right? Please. So if these statues and these monuments are creating situations that are unjust, right? That some people feel are, uh, if these are symbols of injustice, they then become an impediment on our path toward unity, right? And then we have to do something about that. We have to sort of reconcile mm-hmm. our, um, our difficulty in achieving justice as it relates to these monuments as we move toward unity. So that's just a sort of a continuum of thinking that I would sort of put around uh, the discourse of the monuments and then now our efforts to um, 
bring down these monuments and to let's say perhaps reimagine them uh re and then uh, uh in so doing reimagining the past that they try to sort of capture and represent um so that we can build a future which leads to unity i probably said too much there and i kind mm-hmm. of <laughs> uh, uh no i really appreciate yeah. it and we're gonna we're actually gonna expand on that last point uh further on in this interview so i'm really I, i'm really grateful that you brought that up um so could you just share back to back to kind of the confederate monuments could you share a bit more about the context surrounding these monuments and when they were constructed and the beliefs that shaped them and and who originally kind of funded them and who they originally portrayed um, the individuals and the accomplishments that these monuments often portrayed. Could you just give us a bit of context around that? Sure. Um, In the years immediately uh, following the civil war, um, you know, the Southern states had been defeated, you know, decisively and um, they were rendered somewhat economically impotent. Right. So it wasn't as though that there was a great deal of wealth for uh, the immediate memorialization of the fallen dead uh, on the Confederate side. However, there were sort of small uh, kinds of monuments, usually sort of in the context of cemeteries and so forth, that were erected to memorialize those who had uh, fallen in the war. Um, and then, of course, what we have to recognize is that uh, for the period of history following um, the Civil War from about 1865 until 1877, we have this period of reconstruction, what's called reconstruction in the South, where federal troops, primarily uh, federal troops from the north, are occupying southern states. Um, And in so doing, attempting to give full rights of citizenship to um, the formerly enslaved African-Americans in the southern states and attempting to sort of make sure that the Constitution of the United States is implemented uh, uh, with justice among all people. Uh, So there is this kind of brilliant moment, you could say, in the aftermath of the Civil War in which there is an attempt to um, fully incorporate or to a certain degree, I wouldn't say fully, to incorporate a black people into the Southern polity. But then what happens um, after sort of like the dissolution of Reconstruction is the emergence of Jim Crow uh, laws, which are primarily, you know, if exclusively meant to uh, if not exclusively, meant to disenfranchise and disempower black people um, in the South. And so it's in that period of the later part of the 19th century and then on into the early decades of the ninth, of, of the, um, the, the, the 20th century that we see the erection of most of the monuments, right? And so it's kind of, it kind of peaks in this period uh, in the sort of like the World War I era, uh, 1914 to 1920, right? And that, that's when we get the most um, the monuments coming up. Um, and what those seem to represent, to my mind, is not – there's a couple of things that are happening in that period, right? It's coming up on the 50th anniversary of the Civil War, right? And there's an attempt in the South to sort of remember um, the Civil War in a way that idealizes Southern culture, right? And which idealizes the cause which they, uh, uh, some Southerners felt they were fighting for, right? In a way that 
marginalized the realities of slavery and black disenfranchisement, right? The other thing that's going on in that period is a kind of reconciliation between the North and the South, right? So we have to realize that in the, you know, the middle of the 19th century, we have an incredibly bloody battle within the American uh, nation, right? And it tore it in half, essentially, right? And then what happened in the decades following was a necessary reconciliation between North and South, but primarily between North and South people who were white. And that reconciliation between the North and the South uh, 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 white uh, white Americans of the North and the South necessarily disregarded the history of brutality and enslavement and the reality of uh, black life in that period, right? So in this period of the early 20th century, what you have is the erection of monuments basically tacitly approved by those in the North Right. Which celebrated a history of the South, which just kind of um, you could say marginalized, displaced, ignored the reality of black people and which was put uh, these monuments were also put up as a way of um, let's say symbolically reinforcing the segregationist and Jim Crow uh, laws and social order, which was coming into its peak, you could say, in the early part of the 20th century, right? So these kind of monuments are like the symbolic um, raising up of Jim Crow segregationist uh, thinking, social order, and legal statutes of that time. Um, then the other thing to sort of realize also is that uh, many of these monuments were not uh, erected necessarily by uh, governments. They definitely didn't sort of raise to that standard of what we could call public art, being art of the people, of the populace. They were oftentimes erected uh, under the funding, by the funding of particular organizations or small groups of people that held to a certain kind of ideology, you know, of the sort of the, the necessary glorification of uh, the Southern segregationist or the Southern uh, slave past, right? Um, and so there are these small organizations like the um, United Daughters of the Confederacy, right, which was a group of women meant to kind of like reimagine uh, history in a way that valorized and um, sort of championed this narrative of um, kind of like a white, genteel uh, southern community um, and they wrote and, and they were the ones who who raised up the money to have these monuments established and do you know much about the people that these monuments portrayed like the individuals and some of their accomplishments well there are these um, statues of what you what you could call the common soldier right so kind of unidentified uh, confederate soldiers who were to be honored for their valor their valor and bravery right and um, so that's one type of monument that was established then 
there are these, um, a, you know, these sort of these somewhat heroic figures um, of the Confederate Army, uh, people like Robert E. Lee um, and uh, others like John C. Cal- Calhoun. Um, and I want to I'll talk about a little bit uh, um, Braxton Bragg. Um, and these are particular figures who played a role in the strategizing and the military military operations, the battles uh, on the side of the con- seceding Confederacy. And um, th- these are among the, 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 the individuals who are most widely uh, commemorated here. Um, and, you know, I really think that uh, there's a kind of incredible sort of um, mythology around these figures uh, who fought in this losing cause to sort of break apart uh, the nation uh, in order to preserve slavery. And it's oftentimes one that uh, doesn't really sort of reflect what we might call historical reality. For example, if we think about uh, Braxton Bragg, who has a few monuments, he's he's in he's like the in the top ten uh, most uh, memorialized figures in uh in the confederacy he was not a very great uh leader in terms of military uh effect he didn't he didn't lead many uh, he didn't lead the confederacy into many victorious battles and yet uh he still became this uh figure who was honored in such a way that the largest military installate one of the largest military installations in the world um fort bragg in north carolina right is named after him and Hmm. So, you know, it's this kind of fascinating way in which these figures who may not may not have been, you know, the greatest military minds or even been all that valorous in terms of their uh, in terms of their participation in these battles are still kind of like uh, held up um, in their symbolic representation of the fight for um secession and the confederacy so it's this kind of great irony that we see something like you know fort bragg um and and the monuments the other monuments memorializing braxton bragg uh who was a you know a very poor military uh figure um uh still kind of as this celebrated um individual of the confederacy do you know much about the strategy behind why these monuments were placed in the locations that we find them today so oftentimes uh these monuments were put in place it were put in places that uh they would be seen by you know masses of people um and there is an argument about the way in which some of these um some of these symbolic pieces of art uh, were installed that says that they were a kind of representation of white supremacist power uh, for black people in the early part, the late part of the 19th century and early part of the 20th century um, that meant to, that was meant to remind them of the social order and their place in the stratified uh, racial configurations of the South, right? So, and if we think about strata, right, these figures are often placed on plinths, on pedestals, uh, which raise them up above everyone Mm. who sees them. And in some cases, these um, 
monuments were put in places where it was likely that uh, many black people would see them. And so they served as a kind of um, what, let's say a kind of a symbolic, oppressive sur- uh, surveillance figure, right? Uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, where we had the uh, the horrible uh, attack in, in 2015 of mm-hmm. Dylan Roof in the um, uh, uh, the um, Mother Emmanuel Church in South Carolina, where where fit, where nine people uh, were murdered uh, after sharing prayer with this uh, with this sort of terrorist figure. Um, in that, just down the not not far from that church, you had a monument of John C. Calhoun, which, when it was first uh, erected in the late. 19th century was low to the ground and it was said that black people would pass by that and knowing its symbolic uh meaning they would kind of uh, try to make uh, covert attempts to deface it um, maybe scratch up part of it or take off part of the statue and so then what happened is that this uh, statue got raised mm. up onto a 80 foot pillar Right. Uh, In which John C. Calhoun looks down uh, in a way that has this kind of obviously this symbolic representation of power and dominance um, right in the vicinity of like, uh, you know, where where black people would have been uh, likely to see that. So there's a way that, um, yes, these are uh, figures that were put in public space to kind of shape our understanding of the racial politics of that space, but then also particularly, some have argued, geared toward a, geared toward a, um, reminder for African-Americans that there was a sort of, one could see very symbolically, a white supremacy that was reigning in the very areas where they lived. Hmm. Wow. Thank you so much for taking the time to give us that wonderful overview. You, you covered a lot of ground in that in that period of time. I really appreciate it. Now, as an artist, and this is generally an art-based podcast looking at the intersection of art and spirituality, I'm curious about the creativity and craftsmanship behind these monuments. What can you tell us about the artists who crafted them and designed and constructed them and some of the particular choices behind the materials and symbolism that they chose to use in the monuments? Sure. So, interestingly... Um, in that period of the early 20th century, there were a mass. There was a mass production of these soldier figures that were used as the kind of common soldier, common man soldier uh, that w- that that uh, didn't have any kind of historical specificity in terms of the personage that was being remembered. And these mass-produced statues had. Um, a place both in the north and in the south. And so they would produce these figures and then change simply the symbol or the flag on the belt buckle of the anonymous soldier that was represented in some of these statues. And some would then uh, stand in the uh, northern uh, states, and then others would stand in the southern states. And so uh, there are these these kinds of uh, symbols uh, that were used in 
public memorials that were not very artistically innovative mm. and they were simply fulfilling a kind of function. Then there, there were other uh, kinds that were commissioned, usually specifically uh, with the uh, uh, individual figures that needed to be um, kind of uh, presented in certain ways. And usually they are... Um, in the poses that we associate with power and valor. And uh, of, of course, you know, sometimes they're placed upon horses, which raise them up to another level of symbolic sort of uh, meaning. And then on top of that, put upon pillars and plinths and platforms that raise them up and give them a kind of, um, you know, a, a sort of imbue them with a meaning uh, and strength of and, and dominance, you could say. Um, and those that was the kind of the tradition of war memorialization um, that had been that's been around in Western culture for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And simply these statues kind of find their place, I think, within a tradition of statuary uh, and uh, representation of military valor that has been around for some time uh, in Western culture. And. Uh, of course, I think that the the maybe some of the materials that were being used, um, uh, bronze, for example, uh, again, these were kinds of materials that in that period would have been customary for the um, sort of uh, representation of military heroes. So I don't know a, a whole lot about the particular uh, art history mm. that might be gleaned in an examination of these uh, monuments. But uh, generally, you know, it seems that they fall into a kind of pattern of representation that uh, we might uh, uh, we might uh, find unsurprising. There is one uh, example that I wanted to sort of call attention to, which is quite interesting to sort of give you an idea of the variety and maybe some of the meanings of uh, the uh, Civil War memorialization mm. um, that went on. Uh, there was one statue that was erected in 1923. Uh, this is in North Carolina in Durham, and it's called the Unity Monument. And interestingly, it has a, it, you know, the words unity are, are uh, etched into the uh, platform of um, a base that then holds two Corinthian columns side by side. And those Corinthian columns are, you know, very uh, fascinatingly meant to represent um, the North and the South, right? In this period of reconciliation between these two um, halves, you could say, of a nation, of a white nation that had been divided. And so here, again, we see that earlier, I, that idea that I brought up earlier about the effort to bring together um, a white nation which had been severed in its war uh, in the uh, 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 basically that ended slavery. Um, and of course, in that reconciliation, what we see is the marginalization, the hiding, the obfuscation of black realities. What is most important is a kind of unity between these two white um, uh, uh, elements of uh, the American nation. Now, the eldest son of Baha'u'llah, Abdu'l-Baha, who was his designated successor, said in a speech in 1912 that, just as God loves all and is kind to all, so must we really love and be kind to everybody. 
We must consider none bad, none worthy of detestation, no one as an enemy. We must love all. Nay, we must consider everyone as related to us, for all are the servants of one God. Now, there are many arguments surrounding these monuments. Some say that these individuals should be celebrated. Others say they should be condemned. It has been suggested that we'd be dishonoring their memory and history by removing their monuments. Now, we know that no one is perfect and that these people in question were flawed and fallible Americans just like all of us and everybody who truly believed they were doing the right thing at the time. As a Baha'i, however, I want to know how you reconcile this with Abdu'l-Baha's instruction, and do you believe that we'd be dishonoring their legacy by removing their monument? Well, there's a, there's a, a I think a few ways to sort of come at that, and I, and one of the things that I, I have been thinking about a lot is the sort of the notion of kind of what we call agape love, right? Which is, you could say, the highest form of love, the love of God for man and man for God. And and then somehow, you know, as we strive toward that agape love, which brings us closest to our creator, um, in that effort, we are then able to sort of love all of humanity, right? Um, Martin Luther King used to talk about this as the kind of love mm. to which um, uh, people must aspire. And I think in that sort of agape love, we could say that um, it is no kind of dishonor to uh, say that the representation of history, which is attached to and tied to these figures, um, might be um, erased or taken down, mm -hmm. not memorialized, um, while still showing agape love for these people, understanding uh, that they too were part of a kind of a human totality, in, in, incredibly misguided, right, in their cruelty, in their violence, right, um, in the horrible systems that they helped to establish and to perpetuate and whose burden we still uh, bear today, mm -hmm. yet at the same time are these kinds of, you know, beings of God, which we are called upon to uh, somehow develop a kind of love for. And I think that the way that we uh, sort of love these figures is not in a kind of eros you know, like a kind of human to, it's almost not like a human to human sort of attraction, but rather an understanding that uh, mm -hmm. even that most detestable figure who may have owned slaves and uh, owned enslaved people and tortured and exploited those people, that somewhere in that being was a kind of spiritual self that um, had uh, some element of divinity within it. And it is that divinity which we search for and then attempt to uh, try to make some connection to uh, in this agape form of love um, mm. that we aspire to. Uh, I think that that injunction that all are loved in no way um, precludes the necessity of determining how we are going to narrativize history. Right. We need to narrativize history and tell history in a way that is going to bring us closer to the unity of all humanity, which we need to achieve as a um, human collective. Right. 
Mm. It is a disservice, right? It's a disservice in our quest toward justice and eventually unity to um, say that we love these figures, right? Mm. In a way that would sort of preserve their memory in the way that it is now being preserved in some of these monuments, right? right. We don't need to do that in order to kind of, we can both change the narrative of history that is associated with these figures and also love them at the same time, right? There mm -hmm. is, in fact, I think if we don't do that, one might say that we don't truly love them, right? Because mm -hmm. within that kind of, um, that, that, uh, uh, ref that, that element of the, these individuals, which was reflective of divinity, Right. Mm -hmm. It that that uh, this is going to get complicated here, but <laughs> that element of divinity within those individuals. Right. Understood, knew that on some unconscious, implicit level that the purpose of all humanity was the achievement of unity. Now we are doing a disservice to that element of divinity within those individuals if we impede our ability to get toward unity, justice, and then unity. And I think by keeping these um, figures memorialized in the way that they often are, mm. um, we actually do a disservice to the element of divinity within them that we should honor. So, wow. again, a kind of complica a complicated way of thinking about it, but that's how I, I feel that, you know, we can both have this agape love uh, toward those figures, but also totally reimagine their place in history. That is such a cool perspective. And it actually it actually kind of ties into my next question, this idea of, of true love and um, the role of America and the role of true love in America's spiritual destiny and bringing the most great peace, which is essentially a new civilization based on spiritual values that will eventually come into being. So Shoghi Effendi, the grandson of Abdu'l-Baha, who served as the guardian of the Baha'i faith, wrote the following in his book, Citadel of Faith, in 1947, that the destiny of America must, however, long and torturous the way, lead through a series of victories and reverses, to the political unification of the Eastern and Western hemispheres, to the emergence of a world government and the establishment of the lesser peace, as foretold by Baha'u'llah and foreshadowed by the prophet Isaiah. It must in the end culminate in the unfurling of the banner of the most great peace in the golden age of the dispensation of Baha'u'llah. And as I, as I understand it, the lesser peace is political unity of the nations that would be a prelude or uh, a path towards that most great peace. So if America has such a powerful spiritual destiny and power to influence the entire world, how do you feel that this conversation of monuments being a reflections of truth will shape what public art and memorialization looks like in the future? Well, I think that, um, you know, we, the, the, the kinds of public art which we um, valorize, which we, which we want to see, right, should be, in my mind, you know, art that brings us closer toward the realization of unity amongst all people, right? So we have to figure out how do we kind of create symbols that are meant to 
bond disparate, seemingly disparate groups of people together. And, you know, there is no sort of single vision of what that uh, kind of public art might be. I think that uh, what we need are, you know, people who are radically imagining the future and then creating pieces of art that work within American tradition to get us closer to that future, which never fails to hold uh, the unity of all humanity as its ultimate goal, right? Um, so I think that that's the kind of public mm. art which we should be striving to uh, sort of see in uh, the sort of American uh, sphere so that we could help the nation and, and the, the nation could sort of live up to this destiny uh, in which we see people coming together in a totally new form uh, with totally totally new forms of social relationships that would characterize true unity amongst all people. Mm. Interestingly, I think that uh, in the Baha'i tradition, you know, uh, I, I, the, the most powerful form of public art uh, that I think that we have is the Mashrik al-Askar. Also known as the Baha'i House of Worship. Right, which is an architectural um, sort of representation of the ideals of the Baha'i faith. Um, they have many doors meant to symbolize the opening uh, toward all peoples and a calling in, a gathering in of all people toward worship. Um, they are both uh, beautiful on the one hand. They inspire admiration and um, sort of visions of a more uh, sort of perfect future. Yet at the same time, uh, we know that these Mashroko Oscars are not simply meant to put us into places of passive kind contemplation. In fact, uh, Shoghi Effendi, who you just, uh, mm -hmm. whose, whose writings you just read from, you know, reminds us that the Mashrika Askar, if it is just a point of aesthetic contemplation, has utterly failed in its purpose, right? Tied to that kind of public art, the, the monument of the house of worship is the necessity of service toward others, right? And so, you know, I think this is kind of like the highest mm. form of art that we can begin to create. Ones that uh, uh, a public art symbolic um, representations of our possible futures, which call upon us and give us means to engage in service in an active way, not simply passively uh, sort of appreciate. You know, um, and so I think that, you know, those are some of the ideals that um, could be imbued into pu American public art that then sort of move us toward a place where unity is possible. Um, I think going back to this ideal of love uh, that we were talking about before, you know, we know that, you know, the, the highest form of love and true love is not simply about, um, let's say, feelings of attraction and uh, uh, sort of, I don't know, uh, feelings of attraction and inspiration, but rather is about sacrifice. You know, true love is about sacrificing for others. And I think that uh, when we serve, uh, we might have to sacrifice mm -hmm. some of our own will, uh, some of our own uh, desires so that we can move 
ourselves toward a better place where, you know, those who are uh, not now kind of fully embraced within the American polity uh, mm. can be can 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 be embraced. Wonderful. I love that you um, you brought up service as the ultimate uh, as the ultimate love, because in my introduction, I mentioned three protagonists, the individual, the community and its institutions or governments. I'd be curious, in line with this conversation of service, have you seen examples where these three protagonists have collectively served and worked together to navigate the conversations surrounding monuments? Or have you seen examples where institutions or governments have engaged individuals and communities in a constructive, consultative process in order to work towards truth and justice? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, some of what we what we see now in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and the summer of 2020, where, you know, many more of our public institutions, uh, sort of, you know, primarily governmental institutions uh, are beginning to really think deeply about the need to um, undo some of the narratives of history mm. that have been embedded in um, like these memorials uh, to the Confederacy. I think we see this kind of interaction between the three protagonists, right? So what we have is oftentimes individuals who are acutely aware of the way in which the narratives of history and of futurity that are embedded in these monuments mm are bringing others into a consciousness of that, right? These are people who are think about these things deeply and who are sometimes themselves deeply affected by these monuments, these symbols, right? They have done uh, what they could, right, to educate a community about the ways in which we can reimagine the past in order to reimagine the future. Once these communities become emboldened and enlivened to the alternative ways of imagining the future and of doing public art, they are then sort of interacting with some of these institutions, which can do things like, if they're governmental institutions, um, begin to underwrite the dismantling of these kinds of monuments mm. and the narratives of history embedded in them. Um, these institutions also are well situated to raise up funds that can be used to sponsor the creation of new forms of art, right? To imagine new public pasts and hist and futures. Um, and so I think that you know, there's a kind of collaboration, if we look at it from a kind of, you know, a positive standpoint between mm. individuals, communities and institutions to um, slowly, but perhaps hopefully uh, reimagine uh, public art in the last few years. And particularly, uh, it has accelerated in the, uh, you know, in the summer of 2020. Um, this is a kind of, you know, a kind of, I think, social and historical process, uh, which oftentimes happens, right? This interaction between those three protagonists. And uh, we see it, perhaps we can understand how it's played out um, recently around the, uh, the, the removal 
uh, of uh, many of these Confederate monuments over the past uh, a few months. Wow. Well, thank you so much, um, Dr. Derek Smith. It's been one of the most enlightening and hopeful conversations that I've had in a very, very long time. So I, I just I'm so grateful for how you shared your insights and reflections. And I know that this will contribute to an evolving conversation in this series, um, but also around the conversation of of addressing racism in, in North America and, and really surrounding the social and spiritual implications of, of monuments and what they represent. Um, so you've really provided a, a platform, and a place for us to start this this conversation here on this podcast and beyond. So thank you once again for your time today. Thank you, Charlie, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and all that you do on this podcast. So um, just more power to you and uh, we move together in serried lines. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Cloud9. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to check out Bahaiteachings.org where you can find more Baha'i-inspired podcasts, videos, and articles.